Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback, California, big church, wrote a number of books. He said this, you never know God is all you need until God is all you have. Now, these words didn't come just from a pastoral study. It, it wasn't from, hey, I, you know, pastors have books of quotes that we say, oh, it's a good quote for along those lines. Uh, no, it, it, it came from rearing a son uh, from almost at the very beginning of his existence dealt with mental illness. And at the age of 27, he took his own life. When it happened, Rick journaled that very day. Only those closest knew that he struggled from birth with mental illness, dark holes of depression, and even suicidal thoughts. In spite of America's best doctors, meds, counselors, and prayers for healing, the torture of mental illness never subsided. Today, after a fun evening together with Kay and me and a momentary wave of despair at his home, he took his life. As many of you personally experienced, trials just have a way of creating those moments of desperation, searching, uh, but even some deep revelations and truths sometimes never encountered until you find yourself in the midst of the valleys of the shadow of death, as we're told in Psalm 23. We often say, misery loves company. Unhappy people seeking other unhappy people. Well, in our text this morning, such was the case. Ten individuals who had no choice but to seek each other's company because their community was quite unique. They had shared a common debilitating and humiliating disease called leprosy. So we read in Luke 17, beginning at verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, oh, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. When I was in Bible college, one of my profs used to suggest that any time we enter the Scriptures, we do, we do so by first placing on what he termed our Jewish thinking caps. Because often we have a bad habit of coming to the Bible and to the Scriptures and interpreting them through the lenses of our own lives, through our own experiences, through our own understanding of life and culture, plus the influences of our culture and our times. And the problem is sometimes when we do this, we lose out on some of the contextual considerations that influence the readers and the author of that time. We, we miss out on some of the nuances or meanings that were given or used to create a real strong emphasis. That's why certain stories were told. It was to help capture the imagination of the audience that was listening. And so we got to remember it was said to them. 
And sometimes there's hidden cultural realities that existed that don't exist in our day and age today. So it doesn't carry the same oomph that it would have for that original audience. So, for example, I reversed it. I said, could you imagine in someone in biblical days hearing me say this? Wow, I had a bogey-free round today, even though my driver wasn't really working, but a birdie in the fourth made my day. And they're sitting there going, okay, what? Okay, so your driver, you have a driver, you're rich, you're a chariot, was sick. Uh, you had to walk, and along the fourth hour, you saw a bird, and somewhere along that line, you missed out on a bogey, or whoever or whatever that is, and he was round, or maybe. No idea. They would be clueless. Well, in our text this morning, as we begin to look at it to help understand, we need to know some of the cultural nuances and practices of that time. For example, leprosy. Now, we know it. It's still around today. It's called Hansen's disease, but it has terrified ancient times since they have record of it back in 600 B.C., all the way in China and ancient. Now, we still have it today in Africa and Asia and Latin America, but for centuries, leprosy was simply considered a curse of God. It was always almost often associated with sin. It did not kill, but neither did it seem to end. Instead, it lingered for years, causing tissues to degenerate and deforming the body. And uh, many think, well, it has to do with disease of the skin. Well, it has more to do uh, as a disease of the nervous system. They actually lose their feeling. In fact, some leprosy patients have even lost some of their body to rats at night because they don't even feel it. In the Old Testament, God had given the Israelites some very specific instructions. What do you do when you deal with someone with these diseases and leprosy and other skin infections? So we're told in Leviticus, if they were suspected of having this disease, you go to a priest for an examination. And if you were found to be infected, we read in Leviticus, the leprous person who has the disease, shall wear torn clothes, let their hair of his head hang loose, he shall cover his upper lip, cry out, unclean, unclean, he shall remain unclean, as long as he has the disease, he is unclean, he shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. They don't know how to deal with this, that's how you deal with it, outside the camp. They were basically seen as utterly unclean physically and spiritually, incurable by man and believed cursed by God. In fact, those who were, had leprosy were so despised and so loathed that one, you weren't allowed in the community whatsoever, not even with your own family. Uh, it was kind of like there's 61 defilements of ancient Jewish law and leprosy was number two right behind being a dead body. They weren't allowed to come within six feet of anybody. And, oh, by the way, if it was windy outside, 150 feet. So imagine with all of this, they're living in this community, outcasts, and suddenly ten of them come walking towards you because they're headed to Jesus. And what if it was windy? And then we're told, so ten men, leprosy, met him. They stood at a distance, called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have 
pity on us. And then Jesus says this. Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, again, we, we see this, we read it, and it takes seconds. But we lose out on so much of, well, what happened in all of that? There's so much more, I believe, that does. And this is what I often do. I will take these moments, I will read it, then I will go back and I'll say, okay, what would it have been like? What if I was one of the ten lepers? And I mull over the text and I begin to think. So as I mulled over this one, I tried to put myself in their shoes and I said, well, obviously... They've heard stories, okay? People are being healed. They're hearing it. They're not seeing it. They can't be in the crowds, but they're hearing it. The rumor mill is going full tilt. And it's not just any healings. Jesus is actually taking the incurable people, the blind and the deaf. In fact, there's even rumor that dead were raised. And so I'm sure to the lepers, they themselves are looking at this and going, unbelievable. They hear the reports to the lame, pick up your mat and walk. What? To the blind, and their sight was restored. So we read in Matthew 15, 30, this was taking place. Great crowds came to him, being Jesus, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, and they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. They were healed. Well, that would be incredible news for a leper. That would be something like suddenly getting that one gift you never thought you would ever see again. Hope was beginning to be rebuilt, stirred. A flame was, what is happening? It's why Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples, by the way, when he was locked up in prison to encourage him, we read in Matthew 11, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. So there you have it. Unbelievable. Imagine this. Unthinkable. Death sentence being reversed. It's actually possible. We could actually think and dream of a normal life. So they track Jesus down and in a (coughs) loud voice, Jesus, have pity. Have pity on us. And I looked at it and says, I get it. Wouldn't we all try anything when we face such circumstances? A loud voice, that's, that's, the, that's normal, I would assume that. Have mercy would come with a little emotion tied behind it when you got desperation before you. And then we're told Jesus does respond. Go show yourselves to the priests. Now, I want you, I, we have to sit on that for a moment because this is what caught my attention. The first thing I notice is the healing didn't happen right away. Oh, I know we read it and we just, (laughs) done. No, no, no. It it didn't happen right away. As you can read, it states, and as they went, they were cleansed. Now, remember, the law was if if you believe you're healed and you're dealing with the skin issues and they're gone and, you know, you're clean and it's obvious, then you go to the priest, as Jesus told them to do. So the implications were obvious. But as they're standing there, before they took that first step, it hadn't happened. They, they were still as they came. So here's the thought I had. Well, how far did they have to go? How many steps did they have to take before they were healed? Before they realized, oh, it's gone. 
We're not told. I think that's on purpose. So I came back to that moment in that time as they all stood there yelling out to Jesus, everyone staring, pulling back, and they stood there in unity, and Jesus says, go see the priest. And they're looking at each other, and going, well, where's the pick up your mat and your heel part? They know what the implications of see the priest was. You're healed. Yeah, go ahead. Go see him. And they're all standing there going, uh, what's going on? You know, when Jesus raised a little girl, grabbed his hand, said to her, my child, get up. She got up. So here they were. That was, you know, see, those were specific. That was deliberate, intentional, immediate. The lepers were left with a decision right there in that moment. Do we go? To the priest as we are i'm sure i'm speculating here i'm sure at least one of them thought this was a waste of time i'm sure some of them said i'm not heading to the village like this i've had enough humiliation and being an outcast in my lifetime let's go back we know from scripture god's not always about fulfilling our requests immediately. 40-year journey to the promised land. Remember how long that took? Scriptures are full of examples of the need to wait, to persevere, to walk through trials and tests. Why the writer, the half-brother of Jesus, James says, you know what, guys? Perseverance develops, you know, character. Look at Abraham. Look at Sarah. Look at Job. Ah, There's a lot of waiting involved in there. In fact, Jesus himself tried to specifically prepare his own followers and the disciples. So we read in John 16, 23, guys, in this world, guess what? You're going to have trouble, period. And trouble we have. And I know if it's simply today's technology or the fact that we're continually accessing constant information, but it feels like Our lives are inundated with trouble. Day after day, we're given reason to often feel overwhelmed with helplessness. From the doctor's bad news that he gives you across the table all the way to wars across the other sea, death becomes a constant topic in this world. We know that. As one author recently wrote, each death reported, every attack witnessed, Every uncertainty amplified. We worry whether we can keep above the surface or swim safely to a place of peace as the waves of affliction and uncertainty crash over us. Any ounce of strength we wake up with can quickly dissipate and we become weak because of the constant barrage of what life throws at us on a daily basis. And as I was reflecting all this, I was reminded of the incident of even the disciples in the boat with Jesus facing not just the imagery of a storm, but an actual storm where here these veteran seagoers were in panic mode because of just how big this storm was. And there Jesus, who is with them, is sleeping, you know, sleeping, the epitome of what peace looks like. Oh, he sleeps like a baby. We think, oh, that's, that's peaceful. And by the way, just prior to Christ's warning about the guarantee of trouble in this world that I referenced earlier in John 16, 33, it's premised with, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. (laughs) And you're going to have trouble. But then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when his deep sleep was interrupted by the disciples in panic mode, 
he's a little disheartened. The length of the valley of the darkness for the disciples was pretty brash and quick, and they just said, we got to wake him up. And he wakes up, he calms the waters, and he says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Two very prominent lessons in that incident. In this world is trouble, and all the emotions and everything attached to it. And in this world is Jesus and all his promises. And I simply was thinking to myself, Glenn, you pick one. You pick one whom you will trust in. For the one you choose will be the one that controls your life. And I said, well, you know, often if we want a quick diagnostic test as to which of these we truly do believe in, which of these we duly trust in, well, I simply ask, what do you fear most? What's the first thing on your mind every morning? Because there's promises in Scripture by God. One of them, Isaiah 33, 6. It says, He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Okay? That's the key to all of this. See, the disciples had warranted a reason to fear in the boat. Death was knocking. And yet Jesus saw their lack of faith. And I often think, well, we think it was the lack of faith to believe that since Jesus is there, they wouldn't face death. He would save the day. Well, I wonder sometimes, well, maybe it had to do more with the fact that they panicked so much in the face of death itself. That somehow our lives here was everything. See, when Jesus said, I have overcome this world, he wasn't simply saying, oh, yeah, and if you trust in me, by the way, anytime sickness and death and pain and trials and temptations and suffering, they will flee before you. That's not what he meant. And so often our theology, in other words, our understanding of faith in God is far too often, including myself, anchored on our beliefs and our hopes that I'll be cured. That my prayers will be answered according to the circumstances I determine necessary. And yet how many of the promises of God made to his children given in the scriptures are in the context of unanswered trials, extended trials and troubles. The presence of one doesn't annihilate the other. God and suffering, they're together. Remember the Hebrews? The list of the heroes of the faith, things that happened to them. Hebrews eleven thirty eight. the world was not worthy of them. Some of these guys were flogged, some were cut in two. They were stoned. And it says, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. I've been there. I want an immediate answer. I want to hear, pick up your mat and walk, healed. I don't want to take that first step that the lepers had to make. I don't want to travel any distance in my struggles and our troubles. And thus so often then our theology is built and developed around what we do with every step we take where we still haven't heard or we're still not healed. And that's why we have some teachings today that somehow have taken it to the point that, well, you deserve it. And it's your lack of faith because you don't have it. When James tells us these trials produce persever perseverance, he wasn't kidding. 
And we know it's in the waiting character is formed, but so is our theology. So is our understanding of God. Some left wondering many times when they encounter this, is there even a God? And Isaiah says the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure of understanding and knowledge, the fear of the Lord. See, the disciples, that was the wrong improper fear, misplaced fear. And because of that, the outcome was panic. And so scripture states in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And I know that's in the context of money, but money is not one of our only masters, is it? It's not our only idol. See, what I truly fear can become my idol. So if I fear what you say, If I fear man's words more than God, guess what? Guess what controls me more? I know it's hard not to hear the fear of the Lord and not think of terror. (laughs) But this call to fear the Lord, it's, it's this spectrum of attitude that needs to develop in faith. And it begins with, yeah, you know what? We're sinners. You know what? You're lost without God. You know what? We're all going to appear before an almighty God who is holy and morally pure. And guess what? We should and we will be ashamed. We deserve punishment. That, my friends, would be justice. Terror is an appropriate response to begin with. In fact, it's the lack of that terror that creates many of the issues in our world today. We've lost that fear of the Lord. We've abandoned it. We think nothing of it. That is to our detriment. But for those, we are told, who give their lives to God through the person of Jesus Christ, whose eyes then become opened to God's love, the fear, the terror begins to fade. In fact, now it heads toward the fear of the Lord that begins to draw us into a sense of awe, reverence, worship, joy, dancing, unbelievable hope and anticipation, a fear that knows God's grace, His promises, His forgiveness, His mercy, His love. Why do you think we're told in 1 John 14 there is no fear in that kind of love? There is no fear in love. Oh, I'm not saying we won't struggle. I don't think that we can continue to believe that we won't be blindsided by pain. It's still going to hurt. There's going to be moments where we're down and up like a yo-yo. Rick Warren also wrote this concerning his son. Kay and I often marveled at his courage to keep moving in spite of relentless pain. I'll never forget how many years ago after another approach had failed to give relief, Matthew said, Dad, I know I'm going to heaven. Why can't I just die and end this pain? But he kept going for another decade. See, it's the whole premise behind Psalm 23, the most used scripture for funerals and suffering and pain and death and trying to deal with it. And so the the psalmist at the very beginning of Psalms 23 sets the foundation. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And you're going, well, I lack a lot of things. (laughs) I lack health. I lack... No, no, no. The Lord 
is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That's the foundation of the entire text. It's the thinking of the words behind Jesus when he said, yeah, there's trouble, but then there's me. Yeah, there's going to be fear, but there's also peace. Remember, I've overcome the world. And I think that's why Jesus was really frustrated with his disciples at that moment. So the psalmist in Psalms 23, grasping the reality, continues to state in verse 4, the one we always go to. So even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Get that? Even though I walk. Even though the steps I take may be more than I expected, not as instant as I'm hearing about others, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. And I'm simply saying, people, how many steps do you think God is asking you and me to take? How far is the as-they-went process of the journey for us? Where does trust enter the scenario? Where does faith come into play? Are there kind of time restrictions on God's promises when it comes to our lives? Or possibly does suffering even play a more important role? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced a fiery furnace. No fault of their own. They were standing up for their faith in a very foreign country. But then came along narcissism to its extreme, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, no, I am going to be your God. I'm going to be your idol. You fear me or you die. And that's what they faced, a death sentence because they chose God. So we read in Daniel 3.17, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But catch this, but if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. See, their confidence was in God. It, it was not in their limited understanding of what they thought God should do. We all have that. They had this inner assurance that one way or the other, no matter what happens to them physically, they would be rescued, even continuing to live in death. And I know this is going to sound harsh, but God is under no obligation to operate according to our limited wisdom. Because it's limited. And I had to ask myself, Glenn, are you willing to serve God whether he conforms to your wisdom or not? Do you truly fear death? Or can I wrap my mind around the reality that God can deliver me even through death? I have overcome the world, said Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. You see, in God's kingdom, our circumstances never dictate or define who God is, his character, his love. If anything, we're often seeing they're used to sharpen our understanding and experience fully his presence, his comfort, and his love. And so the psalmist continues, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I'm reading that and going, did you catch that? Why the heck would we have the presence of God and a meal with our enemies around us, not my friends and my family and my church people with a little, you know, 
a great potluck. You know, no, that's where we want the... No, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Feasting. God's saying, I'm, I'm there with all that crap around you. In that Psalms, we know that it begins with, he leads us to green pastures, makes us lay down, leads us to quiet waters, refreshing our soul, he says, and I'm going, see, that's the key. It's why some can face a fiery furnace, why some can face imminent death. It's why even though I must walk a long distance while others seem to get up and walk and carry their mat right away, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I've come in the quietness to know and understand God in the fear of the Lord. Why do you think Scripture is full of this statement, be still and know that I am God? Israel gets out finally. Egyptians come pouring down them in Exodus, and suddenly it says, The Lord, hey guys, yeah, they're coming. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to stay still. Or in Psalms 46, again, God is our refuge, our strength, and ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains fall, though the storm is coming, the foam and the sea and the waves, though the mountains quake, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. He's our fortress. So back to the lepers. I am wrapping this up. Because I think what happens after this is that what first struck me in this whole morning devotional that I'm going, wait, wait, I, I got to read that again. We read one of them. When he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten clans? Where are the other nine? Why haven't they come back? Why just this foreigner? And then he says, rise, go, your faith has made you well. And the first thought came to mind, what, what do you mean made you well? He was already healed. My, my, my human side said, oh, I bet the other nine got their leprosy back. It doesn't say that. That's where my mind went. Because Jesus said, now you're healed. Ten percent. One out of ten saw what happened. And I suddenly realized one out of ten experienced full healing. Oh, I believe all ten were healed of leprosy. But only one experienced full healing. It comes back to that statement, be still and know that I am God. Because this one leper came back praising God in a loud voice. I bet you it was louder than when he even cried out to Jesus. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. He laid prostrate and he thanked God. And Jesus says, well, why is he the only one that came back and thanked God? There's a little phrase that I skipped in Psalm 23 that people often miss. In the context of all those promises of rest and, you know, walking through the valley of that, it says all of that for his name's sake. Because that's what this is all about. God's. That's why he says, if, if you don't know God, if you don't search him out, if you don't go to a soul depth level of living and breathing and existing in the presence of him, I think we're headed for huge failure. We're headed for disciple panic in the boat failure. That leper 
knew what truly happened that moment. That's why he returned. He knew this was way bigger than what the other, the others just went on in their glory and joy. But he knew something else. He knew who deserved the glory in all this. I'll bet you, again, it's not in there. I'll bet you he was one of the ten that still acknowledged God for who he was and his sovereignty in place even before he was healed of his leprosy. And so he comes recognizing that God has freed him in that moment. And he lays prostrate before God, Jesus, in awe that he was given this blessing. And then Jesus said, sounds like the rise, take up your mat and walk. But he says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. He was already healed of leprosy. There was a deeper spiritual truth going on here. Ten people were healed that day, but one, I believe, was truly healed. Only one experienced the full glory of God's presence, a presence and a knowledge that became a treasure to him that carried him from that day forward, one that continued to walk. I bet you one that if he encountered another valley of death, would walk with confidence and he would be able to say the Lord is my shepherd I truly lack nothing whether I had the leprosy or when I don't but because I know him and that's my ultimate goal I lack nothing let's pray Father God thank you sometimes they're tough words because I don't want to minimize or limit the pain that each and every one of us has encountered, am right now encountering, will encounter. We understand that it's tough. You understand. And so, Father, when scriptures are full of all of these truths and teachings and pleas for desperation to come and give our lives 100% completely to you, will you help us listen? Will you help us grow and understand? Will you help us to be able to fight these battles, these demons that come before us in so many different ways? That we would learn to trust in confidence even when it hurts to do so. Lord, I don't know how many steps people are called to walk here. And I'm not even going to try and put any type of verse or theology behind why some do and some don't. But I do know your promises are for all. And I pray that we can claim them for ourselves. And that we can trust you. And that our confidence ultimately relies on you and the hope of heaven bound. But while we're earth bound, we still pray for that hope and that joy and that ability to walk through these times with minimal devastation. Thank you for people who come around. You have gifted people here in this room to minister to others. May we continue to see the need to do this, not with judgment in any form or fashion, not to cast it somehow sin is behind. No, no, no. That, that's not what this is about. This is about healing our deep souls and desperation and need to be in your presence as a child of God through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have blessed us in Jesus' name. Amen.